just heard is an excerpt from my brand new album, Amor Fatih. You may remember the music videos I put out last year, Blasphemy, Straight A's, and Forward. This new album features all three of those singles plus seven brand new songs. Now I put my all into this project and it's a real representation of my passion for music. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, click in the description or search Cold X-Man on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Africa Brook. Africa is a London-based consultant, writer, and life coach. She's a host of the Beyond the Self podcast. We talk about her background growing up in Zimbabwe and her experience as an immigrant to the UK. We talk about her journey from alcoholism to sobriety. We talk about her essay, Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness. And we talk about the notion of self-sabotage. Africa is essentially a life coach for high-profile clients, and at some point, this conversation basically turns into a life coaching session for me. We talk about my own habits with alcohol, as well as the ways in which I might engage in self-sabotage. Anyway, Africa seems to be very good at her job, and I hope you find something of value in this conversation. So without further ado, Africa Brook. Africa Brooke, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. By As the way. am I. Good. <laughs> so um, so before we get into any topics in the world, I just want to focus on you a little yeah. bit and your upbringing and how you came to be the person that you are, right? You're this, I don't know if you would call yourself a life coach. You are a, a coach and you focus on issues related to self-sabotage and well-being and all of these things that many of us deal with, sobriety and all, all kinds of things that will be relatable struggles for many people in my audience, self-censorship. Um, so before we get into those topics, I just want to get to know how you came to be this sort of person. Uh, you were born in Zimbabwe, right? Yes, I was. And, um, you know, when someone asks me that question, I always think to myself, what is the simplest way that I can put forward so many things. And I was born and raised in Zimbabwe and I left the country at nine years old. It, it wasn't just me by myself. It was me and my older sister. And the work that I do today is really influenced by my upbringing, actually. I think that's why I view the world in such a different way, because I think people hear the way that I speak and make so many assumptions about where I might be from and what my life experience has been. But I have, from the age of zero to nine years old, I experienced so many different things in Zimbabwe. And I grew up in a two-parent household, and my parents, for the most part, very loving in their own way. And when I say in their own way, I think culturally, regardless of where you're from, there's specific nuanced ways that people show love. And for me, my parents were not 
sort of words of affirmations type of people, you know, telling you that you're beautiful and kind of cuddly and touchy. They were very much in survival mode. And I think that was because of the country that I was born and raised in. It was at a time where there was economic breakdown. There was a lot of corruption in the country. A lot of things were changing. So my parents, for the most part, were just on survival mode. And I'm one of four. I'm the third child. And I I just had to grow up pretty quickly. I think that's something that's really important, a very important part of my story, actually, that I had to grow up very, very quickly. I did experience a childhood that was enriching and fun, but I had to have independence from a very, very young age, which I think is a common story for a lot of African children, actually, especially with immigrant parents coming to to the UK or to the West. But also... Another important piece of this, which ties into my sobriety, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but I grew up in a home where my father was an alcoholic. Mm. And even though he was a wonderful, wonderful man when he was sober, I mean, Maxwell was just the most charming man. If you walked into a room, you'd be able to feel him. He was compassionate. Um, He was very understanding. He was a teacher. So he was very smart and very curious and interested. And these are all qualities that I truly believe that I got from my father as well. But when he drank, he would be the complete opposite to the person that we knew. He was not just verbally violent, but he was also physically violent to my mother and to all of us. We never knew what version of my dad we were going to get after he'd been having a drink. And it also meant that it wasn't just about me and my siblings having to grow up very quickly, but it meant that we had to have a certain level of alertness and awareness from a very, very young age. And that pretty much shaped my childhood a lot of the time in terms of distrust, just not being able to trust whether it's men, but not being able to trust the people that were meant to look after me, including my mum, who tried her absolute best. She's fantastic. But she was also in survival mode. She was also becoming a shell of who she was. She was also facing the reality of living in a country like Zimbabwe, which used to be one of the most fruitful countries in Africa. It was even referred to as the bread basket of Africa. And, um, having to face the reality that it was not the Zimbabwe she used to know. And she was going to have to make a decision, a difficult decision to leave and to figure out how she was going to make a life for herself and her children elsewhere. So she left Zimbabwe when I was maybe seven or eight so that she could set everything up here in the UK. And in Zimbabwe, my mum was a geologist and she was doing very, very well. Mining was a very, very big part of Zimbabwe and the economy. Um, still is to a degree. And she was a geologist and she was doing quite well. We were by no means rich, but we had a fulfilled life. We didn't struggle in any way, um, or at least she didn't allow us to see if we ever did struggle. But in moving to the UK, all of that was relevant. Every degree that she had, being a geologist, it was irrelevant. There's no mining in the same way in this country. So she had to go into the profession that most immigrants do, which is nursing. So she had to start with absolutely nothing. And by that time, 99, my dad's drinking had got even worse. It was, he was at his worst, but he was the one that was looking after us when she came here so she could set everything up and he was supposed to follow as yeah. well. His health declined, his mental health declined. He got even more aggressive. And again, it, it sort of warped my idea of the people that are meant to 
the people that are meant to look after me, in my mind, are supposed to be loving and caring. They're supposed to be present. But he was physically present, but in every other aspect, he was not. And um, so my mum had to start from nothing. She had to be a nurse. And I mean, she absolutely loves it now. She enjoys her work now. She's still a nurse, but she's been doing it for such a long time that it's just it's just become part of who she is. And she likes it and she's very good at what she does. But at that time, that adjustment was very, very difficult. And when I was nine is when we came to the UK and it was a huge culture shock. Did your father come Massively. with Massively, no, he didn't come. He was supposed to follow maybe a year or so after that, but he ended up passing away mm. in 2004. I'm sorry um, to hear that. From, thank you. Um, from health complications related to alcohol. And he was only 40 years old. Jesus. And for me now as a 30-year-old, I realize how young mm-hmm. that is. So it was a very different culture here. Very shocking. I remember even one of the things that I remember, Coleman, is when we were on the train coming from the airport, I remember finding it so odd that people sort of just sat in their seat, almost as if there was like a, like a cubicle around them, just really sternly sat in their seat and no one talks to each other. Because I'm from a culture where if you're on the bus, on the train, people will be chatting and laughing. You'll find out that you're from the same tribe or a different tribe, but there's some kind of connection. Just Things like that were very kind of um, shocking to me. And also, I'd never seen so many white people in one place. I'd just never seen anything like that. And maybe I'm not the only person to say something like this, and I've said it many times, but it was one, it was probably the first day that I realized that I was black. Mm. I'd, ne- I'd never had to think of my race, ever. I just never had to think about it because you're surrounded by people that look like you. Um, of course, I had seen white people. Of course, you see them in TV, etc. But I had just never been so hyper aware of how different I am. So that is a big part of my upbringing. And I think that context is important because when I think about the work that I do today and the conversations that I'm trying to have, I think that perspective can't be missed, that I have nine years, my most formative years, where I grew up in a very different culture, where the idea of, quote unquote, being black is just not a thing at all. Um, Because um, to me, I'm Zimbabwean, I'm from the Shona tribe. And yeah. So I think I'll I'll kind of just, in terms of my early childhood and upbringing, I'll sort of just land there. And yeah, can- so a couple, a couple of thoughts that provokes in me. One is it's interesting your, the cultural difference was brought out on an airplane because I recently heard someone who, who I believe was either Caribbean or West African mm-hmm. talk about the same thing. And she was a mother and uh, she had a baby. And she talked about the different experiences she had carrying a baby on a plane when it was mostly West Africans versus mostly Europeans. And when it was mostly West Africans, there was this congenial talk to everyone spirit. And there was also an ethos of sharing the burden of having the baby Mm. on a plane, right? Mm -hmm. So the baby would be crying and she would just be exhausted. She's been traveling and she would pass it off to somebody who would then placate the baby, give her, you know, a stranger, right? And when she was on a plane with Westerners and, and Europeans, she it would be unthinkable to pass your baby to a stranger. Right. So the burden was all on her. She was unable, exasperated, exhausted. And, you know, eventually people just started giving her these glares of get your it's baby to shut up. Mm-hmm. But she can't because she has no more energy, right? It was, I thought that was a very interesting way to convey the the different cultural background of different peoples and how that can affect a situation. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that was my, um, I, I always remember that. And even the way um, the architecture here in London and the UK is in terms of how people kind of live, I found it so odd that people kind of live so close to each other, but no one speaks to their neighbour. Mm. Most people, it's un, it's unheard of that they sort of just hang out and speak to their neighbour and just knock at their door so they can have a chat. I think maybe outside of London, maybe when you're more in the countryside or smaller communities and villages, you still have that sort of communal thing. But all over Zimbabwe, that's just the default, regardless of whether you're in the city or elsewhere. So I always find those sort of moments and memories very interesting. But then you quickly adjust to environment. So and do then, you feel that like you've become more Western in that respect? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I You're not talking try. to all your neighbors. I do. I do now. And I'm very happy about that mm-hmm. because I, I try my best to. But I think there's something that happens naturally when you become used to an environment. You also just adopt other people's behavior. That's just the way of being. And I find... Um, I think there's something also about London where it's almost like there's a suspicion of kindness. I don't know if it's like that where where you are. I'm as from well. New York, so yes, there's a <laughs> right. huge suspicion of kindness. Right, so people a, will think you're joke, high uh, or drunk. Can't, can't remember who, what comedian does this joke, but they say someone told them to have a good day, and they said, "Don't tell me what to do." That embodies That's London in a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> So I always I always find that interesting. But any time that I talk about my upbringing, I realize just how much that's an important piece in who who I am today. So this other aspect you mentioned of when you grow up around all black people, no one thinks of themselves as black because blackness and whiteness are only thought of in contrast. Right. If there's nothing to contrast, you just think of yourself as people or your tribe or your family. That what's interesting about that is, yes, I've heard that from many Africans, from Caribbeans as well, Jamaicans who come to America and don't think of themselves as black till they Mm -hmm. land here. It's also something I've actually heard from Americans that grew up in a more segregated time. So that's something Condoleezza Rice has said, who grew up her early years in, in Jim Crow. Um, something Thomas Sowell has said, one of my favorite writers that also grew up under Jim Crow segregation. They both said that it wasn't until they were maybe nine or 10 when they saw their first white person in real life that they began to actually understand that they look different and that could have implications. Right. So it's something that is not only seen among immigrants, but also among Americans too of, of a certain era. And what's interesting is that's that time is usually spoken of positively. Mm. And that fact is usually spoken of positively as a bulwark against any sense of inferiority, right? If you only grow up around black people, you never had any reason to feel that you might be inferior to the kids that look different because there were yes. no kids that look different. So I'm curious, is that, is that what you're getting at when you say it's important to understand who you've become that you grew up zero to nine in a monoracial environment? Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, actually. And I think also by the time I was 10 years old and I'd started school, we moved to an area. Actually, when we first came to the UK, we were living in Kent, which is outside of London, and it's predominantly white. Kent is is huge, but there are different towns and different villages, etc. And in the town that we were living in, it was predominantly white. Um, I would say aside from my own family and this boy called Curtis and his family, we were the only black children in school, the only black children. So then my race was further highlighted, but it wasn't just highlighted in a sense of observation. It was made 
obvious to me by other children yeah. because of the jokes that they would make, because of the accent that I had at the time, the accent that I didn't even know that I had. It was because of my nose and where they assumed that I lived. You know, the typical stereotypical things that children will say. So my race was made I, I was I had to be aware of it in a different way to that time being on the train and realizing, oh, wow, I, I look different to most of the people around me. But the most interesting thing is that at no one point, even then, did I think that white people were bad. I just didn't. And I know that's not the common story for many people. I think those experiences can be extremely traumatizing for many, many people. But to me, for whatever reason, I didn't find it um it didn't penetrate my spirit, maybe in the way that they hoped it would. But I think it, for the most part, it was kind of just ignorance and a lot of the things that were normalized in the early 2000s. But it didn't make me feel that there was something wrong with me because I am black. And I think it's because the home that I would go to after school every single day, it was just normal again. I was in Zimbabwe again. My race wasn't a big thing again. And even in school, the friends that I had who were mostly white, actually all of them were white, were so kind to Curtis. me. I wasn't friends with Curtis because <laughs> he was older than me. <laughs> but he was friends with my sister because they were in the same year. And um, <laughs> that's funny. But the friends that I did have, they were so so loving, Coleman. They were so kind. They they were just the nicest people. And I never looked at them as in, oh, they're white and I'm different. They didn't make me feel different. So I think that was able to kind of counteract the very few kids that were quite mean. But even then, they weren't, you know, kind of um, taunting me every single day. But their comments did stick. Mm -hmm. But again, they just didn't penetrate me to a place where I started to think that white people were bad, that it, it just didn't do that. Although I acknowledge that it can for a lot of people. So I think even though, even in childhood, I was targeted because of my race, verbally targeted because of my race, I still, for whatever reason, I still didn't view white people as bad and I never felt wrong about my race. The people that were holding me on a day-to-day -day basis in school, my friends were also white. So I think that's something that I hold on to as well. And I think I've carried that same mindset, even as a teenager, when certain comments were made about my race, even though interestingly enough, when I moved to London as a teenager, most of the derogatory comments that I received about my race were from other black children. Um, because now I was suddenly too white because I had kind right. of grown up in Kent. So surrounded by a very different type of culture, surrounded by kids that speak in a different way. So naturally I will start to speak in the same way. So by the time that I moved to London, I wasn't black enough, Right. which is, which is the most interesting thing. But I still, with all of that, I never had the sort of mindset that there's something wrong with me because of my race or I need to perform a certain way in order to be considered black. And I think it's because of the home that I grew up in. I still speak my mother tongue, Shona, is the language that I speak with my family. We don't really have conversations about race in that way. or So I think that that also helped a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. So take me through your teenage years and your later teenage years. Did you yeah. have a goal about what kind of work you wanted to do or Gosh. what kind of person you wanted to become? Or mm. were you just sort of living day by day? I didn't know. I didn't have any specific goals, but I did want to be a musician. Oh, is that right? I really wanted to wow. be a musician. You didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. What yeah. did you play an instrument or sing? or? Anything? I sang and I still do. You still sing. That's I amazing. sang. I wanted to be... Stevie Nicks. Wow. 
I truly believe. Awesome. <laughs> I truly believed that by the time that I'm 18, I'm pretty much going to be Stevie Nicks. And for those that don't know, she's the lead singer of Fleetwood Mac, yeah. my favorite band. So I always wrote music and wrote stories mm. and told stories from around the age of nine or 10. And I always say this, but my first story that I wrote when I was 10 years old was called The Storm That Killed the Angel. And I, that's a pretty profound title, I think, for a 10-year-old. Yeah. But it's the first story that I we wrote. You were dealing with some shit. <laughs> I think I might have been. But I've always been just creativity runs in my veins with mm -hmm. all of my family members. My sister's an artist. My other sister is an avant-garde hairstylist. And we, we're all just very, very creative people. So from a young age, music is something that I've always been drawn to, writing lyrics all the time. I still have the lyric books from when I was that young. And um, yeah, I truly believed that I was going to be in a band, that I was mm -hmm. going to be a rock musician. And I've always loved jazz. I've always loved blues. I've always loved hip hop and R&B and dancehall and fusing different types oh, of I music. I didn't know this about together. you. That's, that's yeah. I'm a jazz and hip hop musician myself. Yeah. Yes, I know. And yeah. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So by the time this comes out, my album will have dropped. Yes. My rap album will have dropped called Amor Fati. Oh, that's and, incredible. And hopefully I'll do some shows in the city. Yes. Um, but besides that, I do, I do still play jazz gigs and that was my whole life at one point when I was 18 and 19. I was at really, yeah, I was at Juilliard to become a jazz musician, a jazz trombonist. I ended up pivoting to philosophy at Columbia, but I've continued to play jazz gigs uh, and I, it's still a, a source of great pleasure for me. That's incredible. Yeah. Finding that out about you um, because Winston, our mutual friend, told yeah. me and I was just blown away because I know you from your from your work and your right. thinking, but you're also very philosophical in your approach. You're also very, I don't know how to um, describe it. There's kind of like a, the word that comes to mind is like a like a sensuality mm. and a creativity, mm. even in your in your words and the way you speak. So it didn't surprise me, but I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, that's well, amazing. Yeah. Um, share those interests. Um, we do. So, so that's so that's what I wanted to do for a very, very long time. I see. Yeah. So when did you begin life coaching and mm. creating content in the, I guess, broadly in the self-help genre? Or the, yes. uh, although I don't know if you would identify with that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, when did you start developing that side of, of yourself? You know what? It happened accidentally. I could never have guessed that I would be doing the work that I do today, but I... Actually, I say it happened accidentally and it did, but also what I do feels right. I've always been similar to my dad, who was a teacher. I've always been a very curious person. I've always loved to read and I've loved to write. And I'm, I, I have so many questions before I have answers. I always have so many questions that I have. I, I just have so much fun exploring things. Why do we behave in the way that we do? Why do people make the decisions that they do? Even as a young child, I had those sorts of questions. And something that I realized, maybe from when I was about 13, is that a lot of people, including my friends and even some family members that were older than me, would always come to me to ask me 
what they should do about something. Mm. I was kind of always that person that people trust with their inner thoughts, with their struggles, with any kind of adversity. I've always been, for whatever reason, people are drawn to me because of that. And I realized that I've had that from a very, very young age. And I was led to the work that I do through my struggles with alcohol and drugs. So I mentioned earlier on that my dad, he was an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. a, a very serious drinker. And Similar to what ended up happening with me, for him, it just started as fun, you know, as just something that he does occasionally. And then it became something that he does pretty much every single day. But there was still an element of sort of fun to it, you know. And then it became something that he needed to do in order to survive, that he couldn't stop. Even if he wanted to, he just was not able to stop. And when I was 14 years old, I had my first drink. And it was before I moved to London. I was still, actually, I was probably 13, 13, 14. It was before I moved to London. I was still living in Kent where there was a very big drinking culture. I mean, the UK in general, drinking is a very big thing. Um, yeah, I don't think a lot of Americans realize gosh. just how, I mean, we, Americans, we think of ourselves as a culture that drinks for sure. Right. But I've seen, I think I saw WHO data saying that the average Britain drinks twice as much in a year, man, which is really mind-boggling. It really is, especially teenagers, especially even preteens, teenagers. And I don't know exactly what it is now. I've been reading a lot of things that says young people don't drink as much now, Mm -hmm. but they do more drugs. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not better, but in the early 2000s, even mid 2000s, the drinking culture was so extreme, especially white Britain. Mm -hmm. There's just a very different type of relationship with alcohol than let's say immigrants or but for me because I lived in an environment where drinking especially as a 12 year old 13 year old was so prevalent I fell into that Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people were able to fall into that and kind of get out of it but from the first time that I drank I blacked out and blacking out is drinking to a point where you can't make any short-term memories so you have sort of short-term memory loss and I thought it was completely normal. I thought it was just part and parcel of drinking, but it it wasn't. And I trained myself to drink in that way for 10 years. So from the age of 14 up until 24, I was a blackout drinker. Every time that I drank, I wasn't able to have just one. Even if I wanted to, there was almost like this um, mental and physical compulsion to just continue having more. And it came to a point where that way of drinking... And that behavior that I trained, it didn't give a shit if I was at a baby shower or at a rave. I, it's almost like I had a commitment to drink in that same way every single time. And what starts as fun, because when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, some things, it can still be a little bit endearing. Everyone is doing the same thing. But then some people grow. Most people grow out of it. Mm -hmm. Most people are able to use discernment to say, okay, I'm in this specific environment. So having one drink is the reasonable thing to do. But I had just rewired my mind in such a way where it felt near enough impossible to have just one. And when I did have just one drink, it would feel like I'm torturing myself Mm. because there was kind of this thing that I had to feed. And underneath, it was very low self-esteem, a lot of trauma that had been unaddressed from childhood, a lot of shame. I had a lot of sexual shame as well, which I uncovered later on in my sobriety. I felt I had a lot of abandonment wounds as well, being left in Zimbabwe by my mother, even though logically I understand what she was trying to 
do. She had to leave so she could come to the UK, so she could set everything up for us. But in my mind, and on a subconscious level, she had left us with a parent that was so incapable Mm. of looking after us, a parent that continued to harm us, even though he was physically there. So I ended up replicating the exact same behavior of my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, that those stages of it being fun and him, him being just like a fun party person that you always want to be around. Mm-hmm. And then just starting to drink a little bit more than usual. But there's still a bit of fun to it. And then getting to a point where you have to in order to survive. So that's the exact path that I followed. And I tried to consciously get sober seven times and I relapsed every single time. From the age of 19 to 24, those relapses happened. I lost so many friends. No one, the the party was over, it was done, but I I was still going. I couldn't even stay in the same job for longer than a few weeks. And if I was in the same job for a month, it felt like such an achievement. Mm. But then I would sabotage myself again. Mm -hmm. And it's, I always picked jobs. I worked in sort of members clubs and fine dining restaurants. I picked jobs that made it easy for me to hide my drinking in some kind of way. Because if I was working in a members club, to be at the front desk, you you need to be sort of energetic. You Mm. need to be able to not necessarily entertain, but you know what I mean. You need to have a certain personality and bubbly and sort of outgoing. So I was able to hide my drinking in that way. So you were drinking on the job? Yes, I was. I was. Or I would be out the night before and then just go on a binge and just come to work straight after. And you're sort of still drunk. And you're sort of, yeah, you're sort of still drunk. And then in the beginning, maybe they just thought it was kind of my character and who I am. But when it comes to the point where they can smell the alcohol seeping out of your pores, Mm -hmm. it's a bit of an issue. Yeah. Um, So I would just find myself in these cycles of destruction. So as someone that has always been interested in psychology, in what's actually happening to me, what's driving this behavior, I was reading a lot of things behind the scenes. I knew that there was something wrong. I knew that... Was there something about your drunk self that was attractive Mm. to you that made made you kept going back to it so compulsively? Yes, there was a... Oh, that's such a good question. There was a sense of freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a sense of freedom. Freedom from... Freedom from insecurity mm-hmm. being the biggest one just by by the nature of drinking your inhibitions are so low that mm-hmm. you feel like you can do anything right you feel like you can do anything and be anyone i think i think that's the key piece actually you can be whoever the fuck you want to be mm-hmm. and especially if it's around strangers they don't know that this is not the real you but you get validated and you get affirmed for that version of you so you have to keep on becoming that version in order to feel good. So for me, that's what it was. It was kind of chasing this version of Africa that I'd created. And I was giving her all of the credit for my qualities, you know, whether it was the confidence or being able to share all of these ideas that I had. But in in the light of day, when I was sober, I would feel insecure about them. Right. But if I'm drunk or high, I can tell you all of these things that I want to do and what I'm working on. And, mm-hmm. you know, that I uh, the music that I'm writing and I can sing. I was never able to sing sober. I, I was never able to sing sober, not even for my partners or my friends. Mm-hmm. I needed to have had a drink. So it was that version of myself that I was sort of obsessed with and other people were as well. So it was like a feedback loop. Right. Yeah. So 
When you were drinking, were the people around you happy that you were drinking or was it a case of, oh God, Africa's getting drunk. Someone <laughs> needs to help her. She's going to, she's going to do something horrible. Or was it right. Africa's a super fun drunk. Get her another drink. Uh-huh. It was, it was the latter. Yeah. Yeah. So super that makes fun. it especially Get her hard another because, drink. yeah, that makes it especially tough to, to stop drinking because your friends want you to drink. No one thinks anything is wrong. Right. Because I wasn't a sloppy drunk. Right. I wasn't falling around everywhere. There, there might have been occasions where I was. Oh, if you were blacking out, you yeah. may. Well, I guess your friends would tell yeah. you the next day. And for, for the most part, for some people, and this is the scariest thing about blacking out, mm. sometimes, and I have a feeling a lot of people listening will resonate, sometimes you could be in a blackout and no one else can tell. Yeah. Everyone thinks you're fine. Right. There might be a glaze in your eyes and mm. maybe the people that know you best will be like, Coleman, what's the, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's happening? But that's the scariest part of it. People might not be able to tell. So I would make commitments, say I would do certain things. And I was still doing music at this mm. time in my early, in my late teens, early mm. 20s. I would make commitments, have these wonderful opportunities, say that I'm going to do all of these things. But then in the morning, I, I have no idea what I promised mm. I would do. I so I was letting down a lot of people. I was letting a lot of people down. So when you when you say you lost friends at this period, mm -hmm. it wasn't because of how you behaved while you were drunk, was it because you it, were, it was. Like, it, it was, was because of how you Yeah. Behaved. Because I would end up doing certain things. And these could be very subtle things. But when I say my friends, I'm not talking about party acquaintances or mm -hmm. because they all loved it. They, right. We were all doing the same thing. Right. But the people that really knew me could see the character switch. Mm. So they became quite uncomfortable with that, mm. that I could really be this version and do and say certain things or lie about certain things because pathological lying was a big part of my drinking as well. Huge huge because I felt inadequate in so many ways. But when I was drinking and high, I could create this character. Um, but the people that knew me best knew that that wasn't true, mm. you know? So I think there was a level of dist distrust that made some people distance themselves. And it wasn't a case of people saying to me, Africa, I've noticed this and this is wrong. People sometimes just naturally distance themselves mm -hmm. because it's easier than having to sit you down and say, sure. I think there's something wrong. And I had one friend who's still my best friend, Roxanne, who in 2016, which is the year that I finally got sober, she sat me down and she's probably one of the few people that has truly loved me unconditionally. And we met when we were both, when I was 16 and she was 15. So we met in the early stages of us partying and doing all sorts of things together. And she was with me in all of those relapses. And she sat me down in 2016 and she pretty much gave me an ultimatum, which no one had ever done. No one had ever called me out on my bullshit ever. Mm. My family had tried to, many people around me had sort of tried to in very subtle, subtle ways, but no one had ever done it in such a direct way. And that conversation that I had with her, although I still didn't get sober after that, it really landed exactly where it needed to. And months later is when I finally decided to give sobriety another try. I thought I was going to fail. I didn't think it was going to work. I thought it was just one of those things that I'm saying and then nothing is going to change. And because many people around me, I'd taken them on this ride of, I'm not going to drink again. I'm not mm -hmm. going to do drugs again. It's going to be different this time. They were kind of, there's only so much enthusiasm people can have. After the first Yeah, after the first yeah. four. It's right. like, okay. Right. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, I only have one friend left. And 
I'm in a job right now that I actually really enjoy. And I was in a relationship at the time with a man who truly loved me and he'd been with me in my process of trying to get sober. We'd been together for two years at that point. They were the only people that I had around me by that time. I was in full self-sabotage mode and it had become it had become my norm. I wasn't used to any sort of peace. And she gave me an ultimatum. I didn't get sober then. I ended up trying sobriety again a few months later. And the thing that made it different here, which ties into the work that I do today, is I was reading something. I can't remember. I, I think I was reading or listening to an interview with Carl Jung. And he was talking about the shadow and just being able to hear someone else talk about how multi-layered we are really changed my entire life because I truly believed that this is all I am. This is all I ever will be. I'll be a fuck up for the rest of my life and there's just no changing it. So when I came across the concept of shadow work, everything that happens in your subconscious that we we can be all things. We're not just one thing. You're not just good or bad. You're so multi-layered and there's so many things that are running this sort of subconscious programming that is constantly running and you have to bring awareness to certain things in order to be able to change it. It really just ignited my mind in a way that I'd, I'd just never experienced before. And then it just took me on this journey of wanting to understand other things that are happening on a brain-based level. Why do I find myself in this cycle where when things are going so well, when my sobriety, for example, the longest I'd been sober was maybe six months. And then I'd start to feel kind of uncomfortable that mm -hmm. things are going so well. Mm -hmm. And then I would start entertaining the idea of just one more drink mm -hmm. and make a justification to have that one drink, even though a part of me knows that it's, it's not going to be just one. Mm -hmm. because that's not what I want. Mm -hmm. And then I end up on another four day bender and then I'm back in the cycle again, but it right. actually feels quite comfortable. So I discovered what shadow work was. And then I was led on a path of just reading more, consuming as many things as possible. And I was still sober at this time, maybe three weeks sober. And I was so proud of myself that I've been able to go this far, but I'm not just doing it alone now. I kind of have all of this information that allows me to understand what is happening. It allows me to understand that just because I'm having the thoughts of, um, I remember this was my thing for a while, I thought, seeing as alcohol is the problem, maybe I should just stick to Coke. And then I learned that just because you have those thoughts, you don't have to entertain them. You're not your thoughts. You can play the role of being the observer. So I was learning so many tools that completely transformed this part of my sobriety. Was AA a part of your... I went to a few, I went to a few meetings, but it, it didn't resonate with me. Mm -hmm. And I, it didn't resonate with me because I, I didn't quite understand why every single time I get up, I have to say, my name is Africa and I am an addict. Mm -hmm every single time. I'm sort of reaffirming that as part of my identity. And I know that it works for a lot of people. I have friends who've been doing it for decades and it works. But for me, I felt that um, I think language is very important. And the words that you use to speak onto your identity are very important. So I felt very uncomfortable to have to say that every single time. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Africa and I'm an addict. I guess I, I, my assumption is yeah. part of the reason that helps people is because they've for so many years of trying to get sober, have been trying yeah. to convince themselves Maybe I'm not an addict. Maybe I right. can have that one drink. And right. so the mantra. It's, it's part of like an acceptance. Them. Yeah. And right. I, I completely understand that. But I think for me, it was doing something else that mm. didn't feel like progress. I, I think I preferred to find 
just an alternative way. I preferred to find an alternative way. And I was able to get the support that I needed through friends, through reading, through listening to different mentors. And I think stories were a big part of it. You know, listening to other people's stories, people that have experienced so much adversity and struggle and relapse so many times, but they were able to get up, they were able to cultivate resilience. Mm -hmm. So I was able to get my needs met in different ways. And AA being in the meetings was actually really beautiful, actually, because there's no judgment. There is no judgment. And you can bring anything to the table. And no one is going to look at you as if you're evil, mm -hmm. as if there's some kind of moral failing on your part. So it was very useful. But in terms of where I wanted to go, I just didn't see it as the thing that was going to be supportive long term. Once you got sober, were you able to reconnect with some of the friends you had lost? Yes, I was. I was maybe maybe about a year or two in when I was fully grounded mm -hmm. in my sobriety and they knew that I was different mm -hmm. and they knew that I I knew what I was taking accountability mm -hmm. for. You know, it wasn't just sort of a reactionary apology of trying to get people back. I, I knew what I was apologizing for. And the, another thing that was important that I was going to lead up to is I came across the term self-sabotage, maybe six months into my sobriety. And that was also another kind of light bulb moment, which gave me language for everything that then came after. And self-sabotage is essentially when you get in your own way. Maybe when things are going well, you decide to pull the plug or you feel quite uncomfortable when there's no drama or chaos mm. in your life. Mm. Um, so you feel like you need to you need to inject some drama in some kind of way. Or maybe you feel like you're not deserving of good things. You feel like you're not worthy. So you always have to just find a way to, to just shake things up a little bit. And that described my experience to the T. And about a year or two into my sobriety, that's when I started getting trained in things like positive psychology and developmental coaching can, because can you give I an knew an example of self-sabotage. Yeah, absolutely. I can give my own personal example which which I've spoken about before, but I know that a lot of people resonate with this. Mm -hmm. Let's say you are in a romantic relationship with someone and it's a it's a very loving relationship and things are going well. You love this person. This person loves you. You've never felt so understood, actually. Maybe on some level, you've always had a suspicion that relationships always end bad. Mm. One person is always going to cheat. Or you've just always kind of had negative beliefs on some level, conscious or unconscious, about relationships. But now you find yourself in a relationship that actually goes against all of those beliefs. Mm. This person fully accepts you for who you are. When things go wrong, they want to communicate and actually make things work. And it's, it, it makes you uncomfortable for some reason. You can't even intellectually explain why, but it just doesn't feel good that this person understands you so well. So you start to find something wrong with them so you can have an excuse to break up with them. But there's, there's objectively nothing wrong is happening. Things are going really well. You've been in this relationship for a while. So you might start to feel a little bit suffocated. Maybe you start to view them as being clingy when actually 
they're just in this relationship with you and they want to be around you, but you start to find something wrong with them so you can have an excuse to pull the plug so that the belief that you have that relationships always end bad- badly can be fulfilled. And you can say, see. Yeah, it's funny. I have a, a very good friend and I sometimes joke about him every time he dates a girl, he always finds something wrong with her. Like e- even no, it doesn't, no matter how small, right? It could mm. be, you know, she's so attractive. We had a great conversation. Like just like listen all the great fun he had this, but it's never going to work because of this one thing. And I always make this joke to him. And I think he thinks the joke is a little bit unfair and that, I don't know, we'll see how things turn out. But I mean, that seems like a classic example potentially of self-sabotage. Yes. I'm sorry. Do you think you've ever experienced it? Do you think you've ever sabotaged yourself in, in any way? I'm sure that I have. I'm sure that I have at some moments or I've certainly had the temptation to not necessarily in relationships, I think, but I would have to go to therapy. And that, that's the thing. It's rarely conscious. Yeah, it is rarely conscious that what I find so fascinating and what keeps me so excited about the work that I do is knowing that we have this, we're like a supercomputer. And for the most part, we're running on this programming that is so ancient and so subconscious that you could be the most self-aware person, the most intelligent person. But there's a there's, there's certain decisions that you will make that are based on that old programming. Oh, I can give you, I think, I think one example of how I see myself self-sabotage is in self-promotion. Mm. Like my my loathing of promoting myself and promoting my work, right? Like I will put in hundreds or thousands of hours into some project and then just not want to promote it yes. or not, not do certain simple, fairly simple tasks to get as many people to consume that as possible, right. which doesn't make any sense because I want, I literally want as many people to encounter this project mm-hmm. as possible. That's why I'm, you know, I'm sharing it with the world. Yes. Like I'm not, I'm not writing this in my diary. I'm not making this song and leaving it on my computer. I'm putting it out there, but then I'm not going to do simple things to, to broadcast it. And I felt that resistance in myself. And I don't know if that would count. Why? Oh, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. Coleman. I work with this is turning into a therapy. You know what? I can I can hear your listeners being like, oh my goodness, because this is so common and it's huge. Because now, six years on from my own very personal experiences with self-sabotage and then wanting to understand the driving force behind why we do the things we do. Procrastination is another form of self-sabotage where a lot of us have this need and, and it's kind of linked perfectionism is also another form of self-sabotage because you know there's no such thing as perfect. Yeah. You intellectually, on a conscious level, you know that. But on the subconscious level, you're striving for perfection. So you won't allow yourself to even begin or to do anything unless the conditions are perfect, mm-hmm. unless you know that it's going to be perfect. But that's nothing is going to happen. So procrastination is one of the biggest forms of self-sabotage, mm-hmm. actually. But the example that you've given is huge because now six years on, I've moved on from my own subjective experience. I've been studying self-sabotage for a very long time now, just wanting to understand some of the drivers behind it. And I now work with entrepreneurs, people that are hyper visible. So people that are in the public eye, people that for the most part need to promote their work. So the Coleman's of the world, the Africa bricks of the world, people that need to promote for them Mm -hmm. to be seen. But there's a huge resistance to it, huge resistance. Maybe they'll share something once and think it's done just to kind of get it out of the way. Or maybe when they share something a few times, 
they think is too much? What if I'm annoying people? What if people view me as someone that is sort of so self-absorbed or whatever right. the reasons might be? Yeah, I think that's, that's it's huge. the bullseye for me, yeah. probably. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. But do you ever think that about other people? That they're promoting themselves too much? Yeah. Certainly not if I like the product. Right. If I like the product, I'm just grateful that it was promoted enough yeah. to get into my consciousness. Yeah. Because the interesting thing if about If I dislike that, the product, then maybe any level of promotion I'm not into, <laughs> but it's a moot point because I dislike the product. Yeah. Right? That's where the shadow thing comes in, right? Mm. Because if I think... Every time I see other people promoting, I I think that they're self-absorbed. I think they're so they're so caught up in what they're doing. Maybe their work is not even that great. Anyway, I'm going to to place the same judgments onto myself. So now when I try to do it, I will assume that other people are going to look at me in the same way. So then I'll stop myself from doing it so right. that I don't appear that way to other people. So it's just, it's just fascinating. And I think that's why even when I look at self-sabotage through a more, a more cultural lens, which is what I do now with my work around self-censorship, I see that we're we're just getting in our own way. We're saying that we want certain things, but our behavior is in direct contradiction with the mm. things that we say we want. Mm. And I just find that so fascinating. So while I have you here for this free personal therapy session. Yes. So I want to revisit, <laughs> I want to run my relationship to alcohol past you. So, Ooh. you know, I'm someone who drinks two to three times a week, I would say. And I never drink alone or am tempted to drink alone. My, what makes me want to reach for the drink is being in a conversation with someone and feeling any level of social anxiety or discomfort. Mm. Right? Like this conversation is boring me slightly or I'm not being as open as I want to be. Right? Like these are the thoughts and feelings I have, which make me reach for that drink to have a few drinks and get that shortcut to vulnerability, expressing myself as much as I actually want to. Yeah. So it's, I have a strong desire for social connection and yet I, I find social connection sometimes difficult to manufacture in the absence of alcohol, especially with a stranger or with an acquaintance, someone that I'm not extremely close to. Mm -hmm. So that, that is what it's basically being out and about and talking to people that leads me to reach for alcohol. And then inevitably I'm just, even if I'm not quite hung over the next day, yeah. I'm just that little extra bit of lethargic. I was go I was gonna spend an hour really crushing it in the gym and now I'm only spending 30 minutes mm. or I'm not going at all. Or I was really gonna put in that extra two hours of work on this project and it becomes 30 minutes, right? And that is really, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a huge problem, but it's annoying. And it would, the ideal situation would be for me to be able to, you know, socially connect to the extent that I want to, that I really want to deep down without having to reach for alcohol in order to do that. So certainly my problems are nowhere near the scale that yours are. Mm. I think I have a much more a moderate relationship with it, but yeah. There are, I guess there are, you know, a reliance on alcohol is just a spectrum with alcoholic at one end, teetotaling at the other, and this kind of in-between where oh, I yes. imagine I'm probably preaching to the choir for many people um, having this issue. So no doubt you have a lot to say about alcoholism and the extreme hmm. problem. What do you have to say about the kind of moderate 
problems that people like myself encounter. Oh, I love that. I love that because I a lot of people are definitely kind of gray area drinkers. Mm-hmm. Most people are in the middle, I would say. Um, although I think depending where you are culturally, I think here in the UK, most people probably pass the gray area part. You know, something that came up as you were speaking, it was actually a question. How did you connect with people before you started drinking? Well, I think I didn't connect with most people. And then the people I did, I connected with them over shared interests. Mm. So occasionally I would come across someone that we just loved the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Probably music at the time, adolescence. And through playing music together, sharing music together, we would become very close. Yeah. And that was a window into all the other areas of life and intimacy. Well, now that we became friends over our shared interests, now I want to tell you about this thing I'm struggling with a girl, this thing I'm struggling with my family. Yes. And that's how I generally became close to people. To me, essentially, in the examples that you gave, Mm -hmm. we're talking about communication, right? Mm -hmm. How, How can I communicate and connect with people without needing to reach for a drink, without it being a need? And to me, I think, and this is something that I had to remind myself, I had this idea that, Connecting and communicating is supposed to be easy by Mm -hmm. default. If it doesn't feel easy, then something is wrong, right? When that's not actually true. It's a a constant practice. And once I realized, and I don't know if this gives like a clean answer to your question, because I don't think there is one. What I realized was that it is a practice. It is a continuous practice. And for me, a value that is important to me, and I've realized this over time, is courage. Mm. Having authentic courage. I'm still, I still have situation where I feel anxious, where I feel a little bit nervous or just anxious, or I don't want to be somewhere. And I want to have the clarity to know, do I want to be here or not? Do I want to be engaging in this conversation or not? And I allow myself to practice and to be in different situations without trying to warp the experience in some kind of way. So for me, If courage is something that's important to you, then I think it's actually a good thing to put yourself in those situations where you're socially anxious, Mm. but you get to just try a little bit more. And if you're not enjoying the conversation, if you're not enjoying the situation, isn't it a great thing that you get to be aware of that and Mm. you get to decide? You always have a choice. Do I leave? Something that I um, was never able to do was knowing when to leave. Because if I wasn't enjoying something or I was bored, then I would drink Mm -hmm. so that I can make myself stay. So it's almost like I didn't even have internal boundaries. And I think that's huge. I didn't have the boundaries to be like, Africa, we're not enjoying this. Let's go. And finding the right way to leave if you need to. And if I don't take That's to the thing, you. you know, like leaving a social situation yeah. can feel like an attack on everyone else there. Right. Like, fuck you guys. You're boring right. me. I'm going home. It's so, about how you leave. Right. It's about how you leave. Because I think so that's... what have um, you learned about how to leave? It's, um, first of all, I had to let go of um, kind of that binary thinking of if I leave, then I'm bad. Mm -hmm. If I leave, then they're going to think this. Well, how could I leave? Do I have something to do in the morning? And it's about, uh, I I mean, it's a whole thing about communicating, right? Because it's not just about what you're saying, it's the tone and how you say it. So if I have something to do in the morning, then I'll maybe even when I arrive, I'll just be like, by the way, I won't be staying for too long, but I promise that we're we're gonna have a good time Mm -hmm. while I'm here. Mm -hmm. Already, I've been able to tell them I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna be going, but we'll, the time that we have, it's going to be nice, right? right? So I think there are different ways you can practice that without having to be like, you know what, in order for me to be able to tolerate this, 
this, I'm going to take this substance and I'm going to have as much of it as possible and then figure out what happens after that. So I think it's just different ways of either saying no or different ways of leaving. But I think ultimately putting yourself in those quote unquote uncomfortable situations actually allows you to be a more courageous person. And it means that when you do drink, you trust your intention behind that drink. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's because I think drinking to be able to tolerate a person or a situation is already a signal that something isn't, you know, quite right. Or, you know, it it could be a signal that it's not a sustainable friendship or relationship, right? If you're only enjoying each other when you're drunk. Gosh. Right. That's a, and and you cannot realize that for a long time with a person just because you're, you happen to be drunk every time you're around this person. I think I've, my longest friendships and relationships have tended to be with people that I've learned I can enjoy greatly, both sober yes. and tipsy, right? Like they're, they're not a problem when they're drunk, but we can hang out sober for hours and we still have stuff to talk about. Yes. And they're, the relationships where it's just going to be one or the other, Yeah. That can, be, that can be tough because there's a rub that comes out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I am definitely not anti-alcohol. I think I was for the first couple of years, which is completely normal because I suddenly had all of these realizations, even looking at how the alcohol industry markets to women versus to men, you know, even the colors, Mm -hmm. you know, you get things like, um, like a pink Smirnoff or Mm -hmm. something like that. And the sort of advertising, how it's targeted to women versus Mm -hmm. men, just different things that I was reading that made me very, very angry and frustrated. And Mm -hmm. you start to notice that this thing, which is essentially a drug is everywhere. It's kind of one of those things when, when you stop doing something, you start seeing it everywhere. Or when you want something, you start seeing it everywhere. For me, alcohol was the same. And I I think it's um, almost like when people find God or find religion, they just want to tell everyone about it, to kind of save everyone. I think I was like that. I was never pushy, but I I definitely sort of had that energy of um, seeing that a lot of people I knew were struggling were struggling so much. And because of my sobriety, they felt like they could actually share that with me or with other people. But I'm not anti-alcohol. I think everyone gets to decide what they ingest and what they don't. And I think other people can have one or two and still be fine and have fun and be okay with it. But I think it's the honesty. A lot of people are not honest about how it actually makes them feel, Mm. not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. A lot of people are not honest. And as a sober person, people feel comfortable to tell me how it really makes them feel, how it's impacting their life, how they're getting a little bit worried about how much they drink at certain points, about the fact that the older they get, even when they have one, it doesn't feel good. They don't want to even have one. What what can that look like? Um, So I think it's having grace, you know, have some compassion with yourself, but be honest whether it's working for you or against you. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people it it is against. So, you know, what's interesting to me about both American and British and probably European cultures in general is the enormous peer pressure to drink yes. alcohol. So, I experience this because I tend to have a rule with myself where if I'm doing a podcast tomorrow or if I'm doing really anything where I have to be sharp, Mm. I'm not going to drink tonight. I'm not even going to have one just because I want to have great sleep. I want to be the best version of myself. And I just had, you know, I had, it only took a few experiences where I was just a bit lethargic and Mm. hungover, uh, not even quite hungover, but just a bit lethargic with like a great guest. And I was like, wow, I really squandered 
an opportunity to be, mm. to be a fresh mind the only time I may talk to this person in my life, right? So I've maintained that rule for a while now. And so that means sometimes I'm going to a dinner, I have a thing the next day, I'm saying, oh, I'm not drinking tonight. And I've been often encountered a level of pressure around drinking, which is just totally, if you're from this culture, you may think it's normal, but it's actually insane if you were to compare it to any other drugs. For instance, if you don't smoke weed or, or you don't do coke and you're around people that are doing either and you say, oh, no, not for me, not, not yeah. tonight, no one will really think that you're weird. But right. In most cases, people, oh, or even if you say, oh, I don't really smoke weed. Yeah. No one will say, oh, are you a weedaholic? Are you, yeah. what, what's wrong? Have a, have yeah. a, just have a, have Interrogate a bit, you. Yeah. But if you don't have a drink, it's very quickly almost anger. Yeah. Right? Like, are you, are you an alcoholic one? Or what the hell is the matter, man? Just loosen up. Have a fucking drink. Right. Because <laughs> you're making me look like an asshole. It's you're making me think about the fact that maybe I shouldn't be drinking That's tonight. That's what it is. Right. Common and people, good people, normal people get fucking angry at you for not drinking one night. And again, I'm not talking about people with uh, that are were in your pit of true yes. alcoholism. I'm talking about, you know, slightly more moderate mm-hmm. drinkers even. I think the biggest part of that which is exactly what you said, and I hear this time and time again, it's people feeling, for whatever reason, that your no is a judgment on them, you know, that maybe you'll think you're better than them in some way, which which is bizarre when you say it out loud, but I think it's that projection, isn't it? Yeah. Where, where there's... But I would like to think that if you find yourself, especially if it's your friendship group, et cetera, where there is that behavior that highlights something else that goes beyond the alcohol itself, because that means there's no basic respect of your boundaries, right? Of you putting forward your boundaries. And I think it's important just just on the boundaries piece. That's why I think it's huge to cultivate strong internal boundaries where regardless of that external pressure, your no is a no. Mm-hmm. I'm not drinking today. And that's it, full stop. There's no over-explaining. And again, a lot of it as well, people, is to do with your tonality and your mm-hmm. delivery. You don't have to be defensive because sometimes even if you have a bit of a defensive energy that right. can spur the other person on to be like, oh. Right. But if you're convicted, within yourself and just calm. Yo, I'm I'm not drinking today. I'm mm-hmm. fine, but I'll have something else. Maybe some humor as well can kind right. of, you know, because I think also when we're carrying these boundaries, it doesn't have to be like a, you know, but I think you have to have strong internal boundaries because that can be felt by other people as well. And even if they want to pressure you in some kind of way or make their own joke, you have to, you have to hold your own ground. I, I really do believe that, but it can also highlight fractures in relationships. If these are people that are close to you and they seem to pressure you when you've mm-hmm. clearly stated that you're not choosing to partake in a certain thing. So let's pivot to the topic of self-censorship. A few days ago, I, I was delighted to see a, an admirer of mine come up to me after an event I did here. And she said to me, Coleman, it's an honor to meet you. I just want to let you know in 2020, me and two close friends started watching your podcasts and people like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. And because of that, we became a kind of a trio that could talk about these issues openly. And we had a WhatsApp thread with your face on it. And I was so touched because that's exactly who I want to be for people. At the same time, it brought out what is a massive problem in our culture, which is self-censorship, right? This woman felt like she could not talk about the issue of race and racism around most people she knew so that she had to break off in a trio of two people around Mm. whom she could speak freely. And this is a huge problem. 
It's a it's not just a problem on the topic of race. It's about almost anything controversial mm. or politicized. It will come up and you will just find yourself not saying what you believe because you are terrified that you are going to get social pushback and you are going to get viewed as a horrible person. And did you hear what Coleman said in this conversation? Mm. He said that he's X, Y, Z. He's a, he's, you know, he's a horrible person. He believes mm. this. And this is such a deep fear for people that people just find themselves shutting up. A lot of your work has been around helping people to stop self-censor, which is, yes. I think, an much needed and rare intervention. I mean, there's many people complaining about self-censorship. Very few people actually holding you by the hand and helping you stop doing it. Because at some level, to stop doing it, you have to take some responsibility for yes. it, right? You can't simply blame cancel culture and blame everyone else. At some point, you have to decide to stop self-censoring. Mm -hmm if you're gonna make a change. So how do you think about self-censorship from a psychological perspective and what, how do you help people come out of that habit? Yeah, oh, and, and thank you for that reflection. I think in the conversations around cancel culture and what's happening socially, et cetera, which are conversations I, I truly believe are so important and we can't stop having them anytime soon because I think the tide is slowly turning. So we need to keep up these conversations. But I found that one of the missing components that people were not really speaking about was the self-censorship piece. I think we were zooming out, zooming out so much, speaking about the culture, but not talking about what's happening on an individual level, what's kind of fueling all of this. So as someone that has been looking and trying to understand self-sabotage for such a long time when we get in our own way. So we say certain things, but our behavior is completely different and we're not getting our desired results. So we're saying we want connection, for example, but we've never felt more divided. So there were, there were a lot of contradictions that I was noticing in my own behavior that I could easily label as self-sabotage. And I realized that cancel culture to me was ultimately collective sabotage. So it's all of these things that are happening to the individual, but we're coming together from this fragmented place and trying to take action. It, it was just very bizarre. So I really found, and I'm glad that I noticed this quite early on three years ago, that the area that I want to focus on is self-censorship, because I think when the individual starts to honor their supposed wrong thoughts and they cultivate a voice that is actually strong, a voice that is true, a voice that is not just echoing the list of agreed upon things. And when they take responsibility for what their values actually are, for their ideas and their thoughts and their capacity to make mistakes and to be granted redemption. Once you go through that entire process yourself, the individual, you will have the courage to express yourself in a more mindful way. And the work that I have been doing for the past six years in self-sabotage and coaching and consulting and mentoring, I found that I can actually use all of those skills, communication skills, but also emotional resilience and understanding Understanding your mindset and being able to have brave, uncomfortable conversations, which are things I've been doing for a very long time. I can look at what's happening in the culture, take some of those tools and support people in a meaningful way. Because like you said, I didn't just want to um, talk into a void and end up in one echo chamber in, mm -hmm. in sort of the anti-woke group, because that's, that's not what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to continue doing the work that I have been doing for the past five, six years. And, um, for me, the self-censorship piece has just been so transformative in exploring because it goes beyond politics. 
it, it, it speaks to your interpersonal relationships. What are the things that you're withholding from your romantic partner? Because you think if you put them forward, they will leave you. What are the things that you're not saying because the culture that you're from, the family you're from, you might be maybe disowned or you might be rejected in some way. How do you then find the courage? A lot of this is about courage. How do you find the courage to actually express yourself in a way that is true, in a way that is honest, even even when or especially when it goes against the grain? So there, there's this piece of advice, this meme that goes around that yeah. in America, at least, that at Thanksgiving you don't discuss religion and politics because you, you know, that conversation is bound to go poorly. Mm -hmm. You don't want to end up arguing with your uncle about abortion and immigration, yes. which you may disagree with him on. Yes. Is, do you think that's wise advice or do you think that is part of the problem? Do you think we should be trying to talk about all of these controversial topics with people? Or do you think there is some room for a kind of wise you know, let's agree to disagree or yeah. not bring it up. Don't bring it up. Yeah, I by no means. Oh, and that, I'm glad you asked that. That's huge. Because I'm such a fierce advocate for unraveling and undoing self-censorship, I think there are a lot of assumptions that I am maybe like a free speech absolutist, mm. or I think we should say anything and everything that we want to say. That could not be further from the truth. And that's entirely ineffective because there are even people that I used to respect, thinkers that do very great work and people like Kanye West, for example, who you could say that's a, that's a very censor free man. <laughs> but is it effective? Yeah. Is it actually allowing for connection to happen? Because I think you could say whatever you want to say, but if you're not using discernment, yeah. then you're not being effective. So when I work with people individually or when I when I work with groups or in my work, I always emphasize the importance of having a useful social filter. You need to have a social filter mm -hmm. that allows you to be able to engage with the world in a realistic, sustainable, meaningful way. And this is something that we use unconsciously anyway, right? Because I always use the example of, let's say your aunt has a haircut. She has a new haircut. She has this pixie haircut. She She's so excited about it. And she's really, she's wanted everyone to see it. Let's say it is Thanksgiving and she's kind of unveiling this new pixie short haircut for the first time. But in reality, it looks a little bit like Boris Johnson. Are you familiar with the... It looks a little bit like that. But are you going to externalize that thought and that observation? Is it mm -hmm. useful for you to do that? No. She's excited. It's not going to add anything. In fact, it's going to take from the situation, from her own personal joy, right? So it's not going to be a bad thing for you to withhold that and to maybe smile or whatever the reaction might be. It's not you stepping out of integrity. It's you realizing that a social filter in this instance is important because it's not the right time or place or situation and it's not going to be useful. So what happens right? if she says, what do you think of my <laughs> I think in that moment, I would say I like it. Yeah. Because maybe I, I don't hate it. Right. Yeah. I would say I like it and I wouldn't feel like I'm self-censoring. Is that a white lie sort of? Yeah. I think that's a white lie. What would you say? I'd probably say the same thing. Yeah. I would say I like it because it's not taking anything from me. I'm not feeling like I'm betraying myself. I'm not feeling like I'm... You know what? A key, a key variable for me would mm -hmm. be my past relationship with this person. Yeah. So is yeah. this... You know, I have friends that I know if they get a haircut and it's bad, they actually want me to tell yes. them. Yes, yes. And then I have other people I know, proverbial aunt, uh -huh. that I think when she asked me about her haircut, based on everything I know about her, 
I don't think that she really cares for my opinion on it. Yes. I think what she's actually telling me is notice that I got a haircut. Yeah. Right. And so saying I like it is a way of me acknowledging that I'm noticing it. Yes. And you know, there are people that don't, she likes her haircut. She doesn't give a shit what you think. She just wants (laughs) you to notice that she got a haircut. Right. So for me, I think my my response would depend on whether I put them in the former category or the latter. Absolutely. And that language of it depends is huge because that means you don't say every single thought that comes in because not every single thought is a useful thought or a good thought or it's going to add anything or it's going to allow for the dialogue to evolve in a way that will lead you to your desired result. It, mm-hmm. That's not going to be the case for every single thought. So I think discernment is key. So I always tell people there's a difference between self-censoring, which is when you withhold your ideas, your thoughts, your opinions out of fear. Mm. So fear is the driving force. Mm-hmm. Whereas with social filtering, using your useful social filter, which you do every single day, it's from a grounded place. It's from yeah, a place of discernment. Not wanting to be a, an asshole. Yes. Actually. Yes. Right. Because I feel I would be being an asshole if I told told you I don't like your haircut. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, unless it's really like I've been tr- I've been riding shotgun with your haircuts for five years, <laughs> and I have opinions about which ones look good, and I really want you to look good, and I know that you want honest feedback. Yes. Right. Then I don't feel like I'm being a dick. Completely. But different. if I, I guess the feeling of being a dick is kind of my filter in those kind of yes. situations. Yes. Yes. But I do want to. I want to talk about self censorship proper, and what when we talk about self censorship in in 2023 or at any point in the past eight to ten years, what we're talking about is woke ideas yes. m- much of the time. We're talking about the idea that society is racist, that uh, we live in a patriarchy, that your racial identity is a deep key feature of who you are. Mm. And any criticism of these ideas in many circles, uh, at least the circles I have run in and roughly half of uh, you know elite circles or more, you know, if you criticize these ideas, you really run the risk of being seen as a heretic. Yes. So I think when people, and you have this wonderful post called Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness, which I really recommend, you know, people read, especially anyone who feels that they, feels that something is off with the woke uh, social circle that Mm -hmm. they are in, that there is something not quite right about who it's making them become. Um, I really recommend they read that. So I guess my my question is, how do you view the problem of self overcoming self-censorship yeah. specifically with reference to woke ideas and woke subcultures? Yeah, it's a very it's a very debilitating place to be in. And I, I really try to not forget that when I have these conversations. I remember the just how intense it felt from late 2018. For me, late 2018 is when I started to just, before I could intellectualize any of what I was feeling, because of course, retrospect is a beautiful thing because you now have all of these, all all of this language and you can link your behavior in different ways and be able to articulate it clearly. But at that time for me, it was just a feeling. Something doesn't feel quite right. I was part of many different movements at the time, I had started my sexual wellness company, Cherry Revolution, which was a result of discovering my sexual shame and sobriety and wanting to remove shame from conversations around pleasure and sexuality. So naturally, my company and the work that I was doing got labeled as feminism. 
And I always joke about this, but at the time my head's always been shaved, but I had underarm hair. So I had the full uniform for (laughs) feminism. And uh, (laughs) even though I'd never labeled myself as such, but at the end of the day, my values do align with feminism, but that's not a label that I wear and don't need to. But it meant that naturally I started to... um, engage and to be part of certain conversations, whether it was the LGBT community, trans conversations were still, they were very much happening at the time, but not with the same level of intensity as they are happening now. But it was, they were all things that I found to be very important, whether there were conversations about race or sexuality or gender or immigration, just, I I found myself kind of slowly being led into politics, which is not really something that I've ever had a direct and genuine interest in, as in saying that I'm interested in politics. But it's when I started to notice that even just the most intimate aspects of our lives were becoming politicized. Everything was starting to become politicized. And there were a lot of things that I was told that I need to agree with by default of my identity. Because I'm black, I'm supposed to feel oppressed. I'm supposed to believe that every single white person has contributed to the oppression that I feel. And I'm supposed to feel quite angry about it, which was if you remember what I was saying before about my upbringing and the kids that I was around and regardless of the experiences that I had where my race was a target in some way, I still never felt that white people were to blame entirely as a race because of how I feel and because of what these children are doing. But from around 2017, 2018, there was this intensity of feeling that I had to agree with all of these things in order for me to be accepted as part of the black community or part of the progressive community or any other community that was a part of that. And it just didn't feel, some of the things that I was echoing just didn't feel right or true. But at the same time, I was holding them and championing them with such intensity. But I was only doing that because I felt like it was what I had to do in order to be accepted. And if I don't agree, that means I am right wing. And I don't believe that to be a bad thing at all. If you're right wing, left wing, whatever your politics are, that's fine. But at the time, for someone to have put the label right wing onto me felt like such a punishment, like there was a weight to it, you know. So I felt that I had to agree with all of these things, but not just agree mentally, but to also state that I agree and these mantras that I had to also say. And then in 2019, it got even worse for me. I felt that there were a lot of thoughts that I had and a lot of questions that I had. I I was noticing a lot of contradictions as well, but I felt that I couldn't say it. It felt like a betrayal. Mm -hmm. It felt like a betrayal to any black person for me to be thinking in this way. So that's where the self-censorship started in my own mind. And I always refer to it as the mob in your mind, because that's what it feels like. Before the internet mob can even get to you, there's the one that gets to you from in here. And it made me very sick. I remember having chronic migraines, which is something that I've had from a young age. But when I'm going through an extremely stressful period, I get them. And I had them consistently for that entire year Mm. because there was such a conflict in that I'm a very confident and outspoken person. I'm willing to speak about anything and everything. But 
when it came to certain things, certain topics, I felt like I, I couldn't go there, mm. even with the people around me or even especially with the people around me at the time. And that's when I truly realized I didn't even know what the term self-censorship was then. I, it was just a very visceral thing that was consuming every cell of my being, feeling like I'm lying. I, I don't agree with this, but I'm being told that I need to. Listening to people like um, Jordan Peterson, even Aisha, who was one of the first people to start speaking about things like this, mm. especially here in the UK, uh, trigonometry, it felt like I was doing something bad mm. by listening to them. Mm -hmm. Even when I came across you in mm. 2020, mm. I felt wrong mm. for listening yeah, because it felt like I, like I, I shouldn't. I should have, what if someone's fucking watching? I shouldn't right. be listening to this because that's how entrenched I was in different echo chambers. But there was a struggle because my old self who had at some point in time sort of agreed and made these commitments and the self that knew that this isn't right. Africa, this is not who you are. This is not how you think. This is not how you speak about these things. This is not what you believe. There was a struggle between the two. And then in 2020 is when I actually allowed my true self, the person that I am now to make that declaration of I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't play this game mm. anymore. So that's how I sort of unraveled my own self-censorship and realized that it was a form of self-sabotage. And then I started speaking about it in the way that I do today. Part of the problem with self-censorship about woke ideas is mm. that I've, I've found myself in this situation, right? I, I've, because of who I am, I've probably to a greater extent than most people been in situations where I'm talking to someone and they're literally like yelling at me, telling me I'm a bad person. Right. And I am, these situations are very psychologically tough. Mm. Right. And I find myself become less articulate about what I actually believe when the glare of social disapproval and, and all of that is being directed at me. So, you know, the, the word that usually comes to the tip of my tongue doesn't arrive because I feel an almost flight or flight, fight or flight sense of threat, right? Yeah. So I think this is one of the big problems, right? Like if, if I could speak as articulately as I do on my podcast or when I'm giving a speech or a Q&A in the situation where there's four people around me telling me I'm not black enough for what I'm saying right now and interrupting me and all of these social dynamics that come with how heretics tend to yeah. be treated... It would be easier, but uh, I mean, and then there's this sense that maybe I'm just n incapable of reaching the people I'm talking to. So the next word out my mouth doesn't matter. It doesn't matter right. if it's, it doesn't matter if it's high quality, if, if, if it's well chosen or not. So I'm curious how you think of just situations where you're currently, you're having that tough conversation. Mm. You're being the one to disagree with the people you're around. How do you retain composure? in that mm -hmm. kind of a situation. I, I'm ironically, I'm viewed as someone that is quote unquote great at this, right? This is a mm. question I always get from my followers, right? How do you do you you seem to be so great at all. But from my own perspective, I'm, I don't, you know, I struggle with it. Right. So I'm curious how you approach this. It's so difficult. I've never personally had that situation in that exact same way. I've had people, a conversation where someone does disagree with me, but for the most part, I've been lucky to have those conversations when there's a foundation of respect. Mm. The other, the person in front of me respects what I have to say in some way. But it's it's incredibly tough mentally 
because it just shakes your nervous system. So you, you're, you're not in a place where you even feel safe enough to be rational and to mm. be relaxed. And I think for the most part, what a lot of people need to do in that situation is to not actually engage. Because I, and to even answer this question effectively, because there's no one size fits all answer for this, because it depends on your character. It depends on your personality. Some people actually thrive in those situations. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some people yeah. thrive. They like it. They yeah. know how to do it. They're very quick. But then some people, it depends on your response time. If you're someone that actually needs time before they can respond and gather their thoughts, then nothing good is going to come from it. You're, you're not going to be able to navigate that situation. So for me, I know myself well enough to know that I can handle a certain level of conflict. Mm -hmm. But if I can sense that there's disrespect, this is not going anywhere, you're talking over me, the best thing I can do is to remove myself from that situation. Mm. And my ego is not too big that I can't remove myself from that situation because I think it's worse if I try and engage and then I'm flustered and then I end up saying the wrong thing. I would rather not go, go down that path. So I think it's knowing who you are. What is your communication style? Right. I think it's very, very important. And in the moment, you can't for the most part, you can't prepare for those moments because you don't know how it's going to work out. But you can prepare for how you will respond by knowing yourself. So for me, it is removing myself if I know that I don't this is not going to be conducive. Mm -hmm. And these people clearly are operating from a place of purely emotion. And even that example you gave, it sounds mm -hmm. like it's purely emotion. Even mm -hmm. if you come out with something rational, that might amp them up even more mm -hmm. because rationality and emotion. It, like oil and water. Oh my goodness. It doesn't work. So for me, removing myself from the situation seems to be the most effective thing. Mm. But if you're someone that can handle themselves and you're like, you know what, I do like a challenge, let's go. Then if that's your personality, then yeah. But for, for most of us, it's, it's actually not worth it unless there's a baseline of understanding. Even if there's no respect, if you will, if you know that the other person is going to allow you to at least speak, then I think maybe it's worthy of engaging. But man, yeah, I tough. You know, there is, I mean, you said, Sometimes for some people, the ego doesn't allow them to just leave the conversation. Yeah. I think that's me. It's not that I have any hope for how the conversation yeah. is going. It's that to leave would mean I can't handle the heat of this topic and I'm somehow conceding maybe that you're right, right? Or that mm. I don't have a response, right? Yeah. So I I never leave the conversation. Like I've been in situations where I was where I a different person might worry that they were about to get beat up. Yeah. Right. And I just I can't bring myself to leave in the same way that I actually I've never blocked anyone on Twitter. Right. Right. Two hundred fifty thousand followers, people saying crazy shit. Yeah. And me all the time and reply guys that get on my nerves, but I can't give anyone the win of saying you got to me enough that I have to leave this. And this mm. might be a part of my own complex but what if you were to reframe that i think um online i can completely understand that in mm. terms of not blocking anyone necessarily mm. and i think it can be useful actually because i something that we're talking about without saying the word is resilience mm -hmm. having that emotional resilience to withstand something even if it's difficult and uncomfortable for mm -hmm. whatever reason you feel that it's important for you to be here and to to engage still even if it's just physically but in that instance where you have those four people around you how can you reframe you leaving so that it's not positioned as some kind of weakness. What else could it be? This is probably why you're a professional coach. This is exactly <laughs> the kind of question I need to ask myself that I never have. And you don't need to have an answer right now, but I think it could yeah. be useful to kind of, because there will come a time 
Maybe because you're you're doing the work you do now, you're going to encounter even more people. You're going to continue getting bigger and bigger. And I'm by no means wishing this upon you, but there will come a time where you might be confronted in that kind of way. And the the most reasonable thing will be to leave the conversation. So it might be really important actually for you to be able to reframe that for yourself so you can know your reason behind it instead of it being about what the other person may or may not think. Maybe similar to the to the promotion thing that we spoke about, right? Because I think, yeah, there's a there's huge merit in knowing when to leave. Okay, so last question. Should I use Venmo or PayPal <laughs> to pay you for this session? This has been great. Stripe? <laughs> Stripe, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been really great for me. And I I hope people found these topics and your way of framing them to be helpful. Mm. Where can my followers follow you? They can find me. I do have a podcast. It's called Beyond the Self. And you will be coming on it very soon. I'm putting that out there. So Beyond the Self is, I would say it is in the realm of self-help, but it's also very much in the realm of philosophy as well. Because I think with some of the conversations that we're having now, it's so easy to feel like everything is out of your control. So my job and my mission is to refocus on the individual, not in a self-absorbed way, but just so we don't feel as helpless, so we can feel a bit inspired by ourselves, so we can cultivate courage. So you can find me on my podcast every week, but I'm also on social media, Instagram at Africa Brook with an E at the end. Twitter, you might have to give me some tips. I've been trying to dip in and out, but it's t- it's too much. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's t- it's too much. But you're you're a resilient human being, so you you fare well on there. I guess I have people telling me that. I mean, my new strategy is just not to try to have serious conversations on Twitter. Good, and that's working out pretty well, right? Like I, I used to have this expectation that I should be able to have serious conversations in 280 character volleys with thousands of people looking on, hoping to get an attention attention with a comment. I'm not sure why anyone has this expectation. Twitter was not built as a platform to have good conversations. Right. right? It was built to maximize engagement on thoughts that can fit into 280 characters. So I've dropped that expectation, and now I think I have a much better relationship with it. I'll oh, just make a amazing. joke and not take it so seriously and promote my actual work. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay. Then I'm, I might try that strategy. Well, this has been great. And I hope all of my followers go check you out, Africa Brook, Beyond, Beyond the Self. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.